Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and more, all for free. And Sweet Process, focus on the work that matters. Document processes, procedures, and tasks all in one place so you can stay focused on growing your business. Taylor Davis, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Mark. I love that you are here. You and I are friends. We've been we've been hanging out in the world of architecture for years. You are a very early uh, member at Entree Architect. Uh, you've been part of the community for, I don't know, over a decade for sure. Um, and... Uh, and you and I have hung out in cities at conventions, and and uh, and so it's really great to have you on the show for one to catch up, but also mm-hmm. to to share a little bit about what you're doing because I really love what you're doing, and I think it's an important piece of architecture that uh, others can learn from. They can certainly benefit from what you're doing, but also you might be able to inspire them to to do a little focusing, a little internal. Uh, check on who they are and where they want to be and what they want the world to be. And so I'd love to have that conversation. Let me introduce you to anybody who doesn't know who you are. Taylor Davis is the founder of TPD Architect, a residential architecture, interiors, and planning firm that specializes in helping families live longer in homes they love. 
As an architect, Taylor is focused on thoughtful design strategies to address the unique needs of her clients, whether that involves working with a growing family or a couple downsizing for the next chapter. A mother of three, Taylor enjoys travel and her tap dancing classes, which I did not know. <laughs> she, <laughs> she is a counselor of the Birmingham uh, chapter of the American Institute of Architects and is a member of the advisory committee for the Morris Fund for the Design Arts. She received her undergraduate at Princeton University and her master's of architecture from the University of Virginia. She is a member of the AIA, is NCARB certified, and recently completed her Aging in Place certification through the National Association of Home Builders. Before we get too deep into this episode, let's say thank you to our platform sponsors, RCAT and Sweet Process. I'm hearing it more and more among the Entree Architect community. The workload is piling up. With project conditions changing and limited time to get things done, it's good to have information at your fingertips. RCAT.com provides architects, engineers, spec writers, and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building product content. And it's designed so you can access it quickly and efficiently. Even better, RCAT.com is free to use and requires no registration, no credit card, no email. So visit today at rcat.com and access the information you need now. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you frustrated with how long it takes to get stuff done in your architecture firm? Or how chaotic and confusing things seem to get? Well, let me tell you about a much better way of getting work done. Let me tell you about an amazing new tool that will help you overcome the frustrating log jams in your architecture firm. Sweet Process. It's a simple yet powerful tool that lets you create clear step-by-step -step instructions for every task in your architecture firm. From writing proposals, to executing client work, to responding to client requests. So everything gets done more easily and more reliably. Plus, you'll have a central place where everyone who works for you your employees, your contractors, even virtual assistants can access your procedures anytime from any device. The best way to understand how Sweet Process streamlines your work is to start using it. The company offers a 14-day free trial, but listeners to this podcast, the Entree Architect community, you can try Sweet Process for 28 days free, free of charge, 28 days. You don't even have to enter a credit card to get started. Just visit sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect to start your free 28-day trial. That's sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect. And let them know that you heard about them at the Entree Architect podcast. sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you the Entree Architect community. Taylor, I love your one-liner, specializing in helping families live longer in homes they love. That hits wow. me straight in the heart because my mom and dad live in a place that they love. They, they actually live in multiple homes that they love. <laughs> they follow the warmth 
uh, up in the summer, they go all the way up as far as they can, as they can go, up a, along the, the border of Canada on the St. Lawrence River. They have a little cottage right on the river, and, uh, and they live there during the summer. And in the winter, they pack up. They come down through North Carolina and come visit us for a little while. And then they keep on going south, and they spend their winters in Cape Coral, Florida, right near Sanibel Island on the West Coast. And, uh, and so that phrase, specializing in helping families live longer in homes they love, um, when I read that, it really vibrated with me. It resonated with me, right? It was personal. Um, and I think that is so important to us as architects to find that thing that is personal to us and try to make the world a better place through the things that we're passionate for, right? The purpose that we've been on, put on this planet for. Uh, and it's clear that this is a purpose of yours. And so I want to dive deeper into that. I want to have that discussion with you. But before we do that, I want to know more about you. I want to learn more about you, Taylor. I want to have you share your origin story. When did you discover the passion for architecture? And who and what inspired you to become an architect? Share that journey with us here. Sure. Um, so I, um, I actually grew up um, in a family where uh, architecture was part of what we did. My dad's an architect. Um, so I spent Saturdays at his office um, playing with the electric eraser. Um, when I was little, I used to take those laminate samples that came on the chains. There's a lot of laminate in the 70s. Then they were necklaces <laughs> yeah. and strut around the office. Um, so this is sort of part and parcel of my growing up. Um, I Dad's firm um ranged from sort of three to four people probably up to about 50 or 60 and then um and he has been in a managing role uh, at that firm since the 70s um and just recently sort of stepped back a little bit where was he uh, where did you grow up in birmingham so we grew up here in birmingham i grew up here in birmingham um and uh, my parents grew up in birmingham my part of my grandparent i mean we have been here forever um, and so, uh, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be an architect, uh, but he was a little hesitant to, uh, <laughs> to encourage that. So I was encouraged, uh, to go look at other professions. And so I spent a summer working for a law firm. I spent a summer working for a publishing company and it really, none of it was particularly fascinating to me. Uh, and so in college, when I announced I wanted to go to architecture school, uh, there were some some hoops he said that I needed to jump through, one of which was going to uh, an architecture program for a summer at Auburn, which was the equivalent of a first year uh, first year in the A school. So I did that. Um, I worked construction for a summer. Um, so I sort of went through some, some, I wouldn't call them tests, but definitely some challenges because I think there was concern that I had not really thought about what yeah. this was going to look like. Yeah. Um, you put the blinders and I, I on. Knew, yeah. And I, yeah. that was sort of all I had known. My mom was a Latin teacher. So it was either be a teacher or an architect. And, and, um, I really wanted to be an architect. Um, and so I, um, I, I sort of jumped through the hurdles and, and, uh, and got to graduate school. Um, graduate school was a little interesting. Um, I, I had grown up as the daughter of a firm owner. Um, so my take on architecture was, was about the business of it. It was about the clients. It was about service. It was about management. It was about 
weathering sort of the ups and downs of the economy. It was, it was some very practical kinds of things. And architecture school was not like that. It was um, a lot of jargon that I thought was ridiculous. Um, it was um, some amazing professors whom I really appreciate having had the opportunity to study under, but I was confused for a little bit because I was like, this doesn't jive with what I know. Um, and so I don't feel like I really felt at home in the profession until I started working. Um, and so I worked in New York for a while, worked at Byer Blender Bell for about five years, um, had the great fortune of working with some extraordinary people there. Um, Richard Southwick, Jack Byer, Crystal Barrisgale taught me a lot about preservation and taught, about, taught me about what it learns, what it means to live in a city, um, uh, taught me about an architect's responsibility in terms of context and client and history. Um, and, and it was a, it was, it helped form for me, a lot of the perspective I have even about working on houses, about context and neighborhood and what it means to work on older houses and what it means to make old spaces work for new people. Um, and so that it really informed a lot of what I do. Um, so anyway, I stayed in New York. Um, we had our first baby in 2001, February, and I was sort of figuring out whether or not I wanted to stay at the firm or, or go out on my own or just be a mom for a little while. And then September 11th happened and we moved to the suburbs. We moved to Ridgewood, New Jersey um, on September 16th, 2001. So my, right afterwards. My rivalry. I grew up in Paramus. So <laughs> oh, it was the rival. Was so we were rival. right in Ridgewood. <laughs> Um, and it, uh, it sort of solidified for me that I was not feeling at that particular moment, like I could be a mom, um, and travel back across the river when something else might happen. And I might, you know, at those few days after September 11th, nobody could leave the city. And I didn't want to be in a position where I was that far separated physically, um, with literally a moat between me and my baby. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a, that was kind of a jarring moment, but it helped me sort of think about kind of what I wanted to do next. And so I started being a mom for a little while and pulled back a little bit, uh, did some projects and uh, moved from doing commercial work and, and retail work. I actually worked for the Port Authority at Byer Blender Bell. We were the consultants to the, um, design work that was happening in the mall under the trade center. So a lot of my portfolio was actually uh, storefronts um, in the mall. And um, so it was, you know, it's sort of a strange time for everybody right then. And it was, it was especially strange. I think um, if you were in that particular area, yeah. um, but anyway, uh, pulling back, I started doing residential work um, in New Jersey and subsequently had two more kids and we moved back to Birmingham in 2007 and um, in the middle of kind of the recession or right before it started and was fortunate enough to move back home where I had people that I had known and um, had known me and trusted me to do work on their houses. And it sort of just kind of took off from there. Um, it was very organic. Um, for a while, it was a lot of ebb and flow. Um, and I would during the busy time, I would be an architect. And during the less busy times, I would pick up everybody from school. Um, and so it, there was a lot of sort of trade-offs associated with it, but ultimately, you know, it, it 
my dad called it the longest startup in the history of all startups, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it worked. Um, and it allowed me to sort of pick the way I wanted to spend my time, pick the projects I wanted to work on, pick the things I wanted to volunteer for and, um, and really build up a business very slowly, but very organically and find kind of really what I wanted to do. I think. Yeah. What inspired you to move back home? Um, we were in a position where my husband was commuting about three hours a day um, to Shelton, Connecticut, um, and it was getting to be untenable. Um, and that sort of started a conversation about, well, is are there places we could go? I assumed I was going to live in New York forever. I mean, when I moved up there, I'm like, I'm in. I love this place. This is this is my vibe. I love being urbane. Um, this is I had wanted to move to New York since I was in fifth grade, um, and so giving that up was a little bit of a of a loss of I think of a little of a dream at that point, mm-hmm. but it was the right thing to do. We were closer to family. My folks are still here. My sister's here. Um, my husband's originally from New Jersey. And, uh, I think at the beginning he was nervous about moving to, to Birmingham, but, um, coming home for me meant, meant a lot of things. It meant family. Uh, it meant being in a, being with my grandparents. Um, it meant raising my kids in a place that I was familiar with. Um, and, uh, and, and it was not, it was, it was not, not a part of the conversation about work that, that I had a lot of people that I knew. Um, and that as a residential architect, that was a real source of potential projects for me were just the people that I had grown up with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you had to make a change because of that commute and your lifestyle mm-hmm. wasn't working where you were, not how terrible. you were doing it. And so you needed to make some sort of change. And so Birmingham was one of those options and, and chose to move closer to home and, mm-hmm. and, uh, closer to the people you love. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, that one of the reasons why I moved to North Carolina, actually the, the reason I moved to North Carolina is because this is where family is. And, yeah. uh, and it allowed my kids to be close to their family and to, to their grandparents and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and their cousins. And, and that's important. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I can relate to that. So, so you slowly built up your firm, residential firm, stay, and right from the beginning, focused residential. You made that decision yep. right up front that that was what you do? Well, it sort of fit my life at that point. I always thought I might sort of step back into commercial, but, um, you know, with little kids, it was easy for me to coordinate schedules with other parents. Um, we could meet when kids were in school or in the evening. We had a lot of evening meetings. Um, I their expectations were that I was a parent. Um, and so my clients weren't expecting me to be on call from eight to five. Um, they were expecting me to be on call during nursery school hours or, or, you know, as school got longer, regular school hours. And so that it sort of synced the residential, the clientele and the expectations of the clientele kind of were in, in line with what my life was looking like at that point and what I wanted it to look like. Yeah. And so, um, I grew to enjoy it more and more, but I think um, there were lots of sort of factors in that. But the biggest one really was that it sort of fit and it fit well. So, so what year was that when you sort of finally sort of connected with residential in Birmingham? Probably in 2009, probably our youngest was two. I had finished my first project here and that was kind of when I said, all right, I'm going to. I'm just going to stick with this. Um, and I took a couple of commercial projects along the way, but I didn't, 
I like people. Um, and, and part of what I like about residential architecture is that, um, there's a little bit of counseling associated with it. There's a whole lot of sort of feeling like you've got family at the end of a project, if God willing, the project goes well and, and mine do. Um, and so there's kind of camaraderie, I think, associated with it that I really enjoyed. And I didn't really want to give that up um, and, and, and make it go from very personal to very transactional. I really enjoy sort of the personal aspect of residential architecture. Yeah. Um, and so I, 2009 was really, I think, probably when I sort of said, all right, I'm into this. Now, I was still into it in a very small level. I had a two-year-old, uh, yeah. a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old. So I was I was still sort of negotiating things. But that was kind of when I made the commitment to, to do residential work. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear your story and listen how it sort of parallels with your life. And mm-hmm. it, it choosing residential architecture allowed you to have the flexibility and the freedom to have the, the, the personal side of your life integrate with your, your, your professional side. Um, mm-hmm. and, and knowing what you do today, it, you can see that evolution, right? As your mm-hmm. kids grew up, your, your life changed, your clients' lives changed, your priorities have changed, and your sort of the firm's focus has changed and evolved over time to sort of reflect where you are in your life and where your clients are in their lives. And can, so can you talk about that evolution a little bit from sort of where it was in 2007 when, you know, your kids were really young and today it's a, you know, different world, different place, different clients, same clients actually with different. Same, a lot of the same clients. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, I think of the last probably seven or eight years, um, uh, as my kids got older and I was able to kind of commit more time to work, I moved out of the basement, got an office, hired someone, hired one and a half people, um, and, and really started feeling better about delegating. Um, it allowed me a little mind space to kind of really think about what it is I wanted a firm to look like a little bit, um, and what the kind of work I wanted to do. And, um, it, it was probably, I want to say it was 2015, 2014, 2015. I got a project with a, um, an older couple whom I had known forever. I mean, I say that about all my clients. I've known them forever. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a very Southern thing to say. Um, and, uh, and they were thinking about building a master suite. They had an older adult child that was living with them and they wanted to build a master suite, but they were living on the second floor. And so we talked about what they would need to do to make this master suite work for them for the long haul. But ultimately the biggest hurdle was it was a big set of stairs that they had to get up to get to that master suite. And so I had to kind of step back and kind of let the family have that conversation um, and uh, come to the conclusion that what they really needed to do was move to the main level, take over another bedroom. And we ended up creating this spacious master suite that was very accessible and facilitated their lives. And it was a great project. I didn't really think about it as being symbolic until a year later, I got a thank you note from, from the client. And she said, it's been one year since I took my first bath in my new tub. And I want to tell you how much it's impacted our lives. Um, We can roll our suitcases easily in and out when we travel. Um, We can spread out in a way that we were never able to before. We don't have to go downstairs to do the laundry. We have a nice little washer and dryer right here in the closet. And it, it was kind of one of those moments where you realized that something that you had done really had a significant impact on somebody's life, especially somebody 
who was nervous about transitioning into a different stage of life. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I really started to get interested in helping folks like my parents' friends um, or, or the parents of my friends that I had grown up with who were living in the same houses that they had grown up in. Um, and that, that I could potentially have a, have a positive impact with projects that, that really expanded their, their ability to live longer in a home that they loved. You know, they'd been there 40 years. They wanted to stay there. They didn't want to leave. They were in a great neighborhood. They just wanted to be able to do the things that they wanted to do and not be hampered by some of the challenges associated with the age of the house or with the layout of the house. Um, so that's really this transition into, into working with older adults and thinking about families transitioning out of that kind of little kid phase into a phase where they're thinking, okay, I'm either building a home that I'm going to be in for the next 30 years, and I already know I'm going to have to get a knee replaced. So what does that look like? Um, or, or my parents are in a position to not be able to go up and down the stairs all the time. How can we help facilitate making their life and their home, because they don't want to leave it, better? Um, and so those questions have kind of come up over time, and I sort of started doing some more projects and ended up... Um, registering for that CAP certification last year. And that really kind of, or a year and a half ago, that really kind of blew the top off of it. And that was when I said, you know, this is, this is really potentially a great area where I feel like I can, it gets overlooked a lot, I think. Um, and older folks um, have an incredible sense of style and they have worked for a long time to make their homes look beautiful. Um, and yet the stuff that's available to them <laughs> to make their homes accessible is horrible. So how can we, you know, how, how can we help ease that sort of fear and that anxiety and support their lifestyles um, and, and do it in a way that makes them feel comfortable um, and they can stay in the home that they love? So I don't know if that really answered the question, but that was kind of the transition point is kind of, is that really that thank you note really sort of shifted everything. So today our, our, are you focused on that as a specialist? Do you do you market yourself as an aging in place specialist? I am currently marketing myself as an aging in place specialist. Um, that you know the the trainer for that program is a guy named Steve Hoffaker, and he's got more energy in his little finger, and he's got to be in his early eighties. He's extraordinary, and he spoke nonstop for three days. One of the things that I say. Um, when people talk about aging in place is that he says, you know, we're aging from the moment we're born. So aging in place is really designing for everybody. It's not, you know, there's no sort of, if you're 75 and up, we need to talk about aging in place. Um, uh, so I think it really impacts a lot more people than sort of the, the AARP set. Um, it certainly impacts me and my family and my parents and my grandmother, who is 98 and lives in a townhouse by herself. We talk about it. Um, so I, I think it that conversation about aging in place, you know, it, it's not a particularly sexy term, but it it does it does really apply to a broad swath of the population. And and that population of older Americans is growing astronomically. I mean, I think I wrote it down you know, the number of people aged 55 to 73 is 71.6 million people. And they own 48% of the homes in this country. Yeah. Yeah. That's an, un, that's a huge number. And, and the housing stock, I, there's a 
Harvard did a study, only 1% of current and existing housing stock in the United States is equipped to meet, I think there were kind of four criteria about zero entry um, or zero clearance entries, uh, wider doorways, lever handles. There were sort of four criteria. Only 1% of existing housing stock meets that criteria. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and then on the other side of that, it doesn't just affect aging. It affects whether you know, I've had a teenager who tore their ACL and is going to be in a wheelchair for a little while. Is there a place where they can take a shower? Um, or, or you've got somebody sick, you know, in recent times quarantining in your home. Is there a, a suite where they have a, an accessible bathroom and bedroom where they can stay for a little while? Um, so yes, aging in place is kind of my specialty, but it impacts a much broader group of people, I think, than than what we would normally think of as kind of the aging population. Yeah. Because as Steve said, we're all aging. So it's, <laughs> it sounds like it's just, it's more of a philosophy on how you design residential mm -hmm. architecture across mm -hmm. the board for anybody. Right. That 100%, when you design yeah. architecture, you design it in a way that anybody can live in it for as long as they right. want to live in it is sort of the right. goal. Right. That's the goal. And that's not always possible with everything, yeah. Yeah. but we can certainly have those conversations. Do you find that that market, the, the, the older generations, the people that you're working on these projects with right. um, tend to have larger budgets too, a little bit more flexible with their budgets because of their Some life do. and where they are in, in their Some life? Some do. Some definitely do. Some are, you know, one of the things we talk about is, is um, what, what, what kind of life do you want to live right now? You know, you're going to live another 25 years, 30 years, God willing, 40 years, whatever that is, what do you want to do? And so, so my in-laws, when they moved to a smaller community in North Carolina, a, a 55 and over community, one of the things that was really important to them was they wanted to be able to travel. So they wanted to be able to be predictive in some of their costs. So energy efficiency was something that they wanted to spend some money on because that would help say, okay, we know we're only going to spend X each month, which gives us enough to be able to travel to do well before COVID travel. So, um, so those conversations vary a little bit. Um, they do tend to have larger budgets, but a lot of the times they want to be predictive or control certain things so that they have enough income to be able to do some of the fun things that they also want to do. So we talk about maintenance, talk about energy efficiency. We kind of talk about all those things, especially when we're doing new homes, um, uh, because there may be a bigger front end investment, but it gives them some security um, that they won't be spending the weekends painting the house or cleaning out the gutters. Um, they'll be able to go fishing with their grandkids. This, the idea that you're a specialist in, in aging in place, was that, because you've, you've made that decision, I'm going to be a specialist, I'm going to market, I'm yes. going to build a brand around this. Um, was that a difficult decision to make to sort of leave the generalist residential architect, I can design anything to say, okay, I'm going to specialize, I'm going to market myself. So when people sit, hit my website, the people who are looking for this say, yep, this I'm home, and people who are not necessarily looking for it may walk away, may click away. Was there sort of some apprehension to, to do that? <laughs> so Mark, I have been a long time Entree Architect uh, affiliate with this community, and I have heard you talk about specialization for a long time, and I was resistant. I did not, I wanted to be able to do it all, and and especially, especially at in, in sort of financial 
unpredictability to be able to take any project, you know, to sort of say, I'm only going to specialize in this. It was kind of a risk. I, I might lose a big project that could potentially get me to the next, right. through the next six months. And so there was some hesitancy associated with it. Um, I think I, I finally sort of saw the light and I had a couple of big projects come my way that were going to benefit from that specialization. And as a result of it, there's been a couple of things that have happened. Conversations have changed uh, drastically about the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, it, it offers me the opportunity when I specialized to focus and say, I really want to be an expert in this. I don't have time to sort of, to think about everything. I want to be able to have the time to focus on this thing. Um, and when you sort of let go of some of that other stuff, there are plenty of other people who can handle those things. Um, I could spend the time doing research and reading and, and listening to podcasts and talking to people who are doing amazing product design with walkers or whatever that is, so that I am in a position to really um, do a better job of learning about this particular aspect of architecture. Um, so it was freeing um, in a lot of ways. So a, a lot of that apprehension was sort of unfounded um, and I was very nervous about it. But once I did it, I it was kind of like the skies opened up, doors opened up, opportunities to, to present things, opportunities to share your knowledge, opportunities to um, have real meaningful conversations in different contexts with insurance companies, with direct medical sellers. So it, 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 in some sense, it was very much a focus, but it also kind of broadened the community that I was talking to. And that was so much fun. Um, and I have really enjoyed um, that process. Uh, it's hard. Uh, and it's hard to sort of put a tunnel on your vision and sort of say, no, that's not, that doesn't fit in. And I don't have to do that with every project. Right. I can still take projects that don't necessarily fit into that specialization for sure. Uh, but, but giving myself the kind of space, the mind space and the time space to be able to focus um, has re-energized me, I think, a lot and, and certainly energized a practice. Yeah, that's very exciting to hear that. It's very counterintuitive to mm -hmm. to sort of uh, say, okay, I'm going to focus on this one thing, and by this one thing, my world's going to open up and broaden and grow because I've focused on this one thing. And then I think that's the thing that's the that's the fear that many of us have to picking that one thing. And for you, um, specializing in in aging in place, designing for uh, people who want to live in their homes longer, um, that that is a very specific focus, but it's also your purpose and your passion, right? It's sort of, it's become who you are as a, as a person beyond an architect, it's who you are personally. Um, and so I think that that also helps, right? That, that it is your mission in life to help as many people as possible live as long as they can in the homes that they love. Um, that's a tremendous opportunity for you as a person, right? To, to be able to have your, your business align with your passion and and uh, be able to look back and see the work that you've done. And the like that note, right? Mm -hmm. That note was, was, was life-changing, like literally mm -hmm. life-changing because it inspired you to look beyond um, what you were doing at that moment. It's like, maybe there's something here that I should mm -hmm. pay attention to. There's a message here. And, uh, it's very exciting to hear that. So what are you doing today? So you've made that decision. 
I'm mm-hmm. going to focus. I'm going to become a specialist. I, ha- I have decided my target market, which is the term that I use all the time, my target market are people who are designing homes um, who that they love, that they want to live in for as long as they can live in that. So what are you doing to make people understand that that's you, that, that when they come to your website or they hear you speak, um, they know that you are the right person? Are there specific things that you're doing in terms of marketing, in terms of messaging that, that uh, will allow people to know that you are the specialist in this market? Um, you know, I, uh, I was introduced to Maya Sharfie on your, uh, on, by one of your podcasts and yep. I have been working with Maya for probably since May, um, of this year. And she has been instrumental in sort of helping me identify ways to communicate that with people. Um, and a lot of them are very simple. Um, I spent probably five weeks this summer, um, sending blast emails to just about everybody I knew advertising a consulting service that we're working on, um, which is about helping identify what some of the challenges might be to staying in your home for a longer time. So it's a, it's a, it's a very specific consulting service that was, we were trying to sort of beta test a little bit, but I, I emailed, I made it a goal to email 50 people every week to tell them, about the service. And it was a little hard sort of right now, pandemic wise, because usually the way I do things is see people in the coffee shop or at the grocery store or whatever that is. And I don't see those folks anymore. And so um, I'm not going on, on tours with my real estate agents that I talk to all the time. I needed to communicate with them um, in a different way. And so those kinds of blast emails, really, I got a tremendous feedback um, from that. That was one sort of way to kind of put that message out there that was very simple. Uh, but the, the discipline of saying, I'm going to send it to 50 people every single week. And I'm going to try and find those 50 people that haven't heard this message yet, or maybe they have, but they just need to see it in kind of a different format. Um, that was, that was a really sort of helpful exercise, I think, um, and allowed me to sort of evangelize a little bit. Um, and and I had never done that before. Um, I think being on podcasts and sort of putting myself out there as um, as uh, applying for panelist positions at conferences that are associated with aging. Um, I'm working on, I, I finished up a big project uh, uh, just this past spring um, for a, a couple where the wife had Parkinson's and um, we designed a whole new main level master suite and laundry room, which is all sort of very cool and accessible and has all sorts of features. But um, that allowed me to really dig in and have something to talk about. So um, it's been a lot of conversations, coffees, making phone calls, just telling people about stuff. So, you know, the marketing has been very personal to a certain extent, um, really communicating it in my, in my market area um, with the goal of expanding that through kind of podcasts and panelist opportunities and design awards and things like that to maybe get outside my kind of geographic area um, and, and expand kind of what I'm able to do as a consultant for people um, who are thinking about this. So the goal is to sort of be a consultant to architects who might be doing multifamily housing, who want to, to figure out kind of some ways to make that um, uh, a marketing piece for them. How do we market this to a community that that um, or to a cohort of people that may want to stay in this house for 25 years? What are sort of the bells and whistles we need to add? 
um, maybe it's developers, maybe it's um, realtors. So, so expanding that into a consulting role beyond a traditional architecture practice is, is kind of what I'm looking, it's sort of the next step in this, this whole process. Yeah, I, I love that. I, the, another example of why when you focus, the opportunities come because now you've focused on this market, you're, you've decided, okay, I'm a specialist in this, I am an expert. So now what can I do with that? I can consult with other architects because I'm an expert. You can hire me and I'll help you do the same thing for you. You can, you can have that service that Maya helped you with 50 people reach out. Uh, you know, I'll do this for this dollar amount. Was that, was that how that worked Was sort of a, a package? Yeah. So it's a little consulting package. And so we go in for, you know, a meeting and we go through kind of what they're what they love about their house, really, that's the first thing we talk about is what do they love about their home? And sort of that gives me a sense of why they're there and why they would want to stay. And, and then you can sort of dive into, is that it, it, the things they love about their, their house uh, uh, make, it, make it feasible for them to enter into a construction project that will allow them to live in that house for longer? Do they love it enough? Um, and sometimes that conversation during that conversation, they're like, yeah, we're not really that thrilled with this house. We could really see ourselves living somewhere else. Um, but that conversation and I take a lot of pictures and I come up with a little customized report with some recommendations, um, that go along with it that are very much targeted to them. Um, that allows them to have a conversation internally, whether it's a couple or a family extended family about what they need to do to live there longer so that they can get that advice of a professional without starting in a whole series of, of contractual obligations that lead to schematic design, that lead to contractors coming in, whatever. They can start on a very sort of base level, kind of a conversation level with some recommendations and, and have that hard conversation. Um, what is it going to look like if I can't, if I need to be in a wheelchair? Yeah. You know, how does that impact us? Is this something we want to build for or not? Um, and so I think the service, um, especially right now, has been uh, very well received. And we are looking forward to doing more of those consultations. It's They're actually really fun. I get to do a lot of talking and that, I like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that's something any architect can do, right? They can, yeah. can, they can bundle a package and say, this yeah. is what I do. But when you do, like, again, focused on the specialist point of view, by focusing as a specialist, now that has even more value because you are, they're hiring you as an expert to give you them, to help them get through this decision-making process. And that alone is worth some money to them. And so they're happy to write a check for four or $500 or whatever you're charging. Oh, I gave them the number and I kept expecting somebody to be like, no, 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 no. And they didn't. And I thought, wow, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. was not what I expected. Raise the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I just also want Maya has been on the show several times. Yeah. Uh, build yourself workshop. I think yep. buildyourselfworkshop.com. dot com. Mm -hmm. So yep. if anybody wants to learn more about Maya, you can go on the podcast, our podcast, and go learn more about Maya. But buildyourselfworkshop.com dot com for Absolutely. Maya's information. I yes. highly recommend it as well. Mostly focused on women, but men certainly can learn what, what she, from what she's teaching over there. So anybody should go over there and, and take a look. Um, so I love what you're doing. I love all these different opportunities. Uh, and you didn't even mention your website, but I'm sure your website is being reworked to sort of focus on that as a specialist. So people, when they land there, are like, oh, yes. home. Yeah, 100%, yes. We are spending a, a it, you know, websites take a little time. So we are, we are investing some time and we're busier than, like every other residential architect right now, we are busier than we have ever been. Um, 
And, uh, and so investing that time on the website is something I know I have to do. And um, uh, it's, it's hard to find the time, the hours to do it, but we are working on that. And that will be a much better reflection, I think, of, of, our, of our focus um, once we are done with it, hopefully in November. Yeah. With everybody home sort of quarantining and, and spending six months now in their houses, everybody is reevaluating the way they live, right? And the future of how they're going to live in the future. So, so residential architects across the board have opportunities to sort of pick a piece of that house and become a specialist in that, but sp especially uh, someone who's looking at aging in place, even at, you know, somebody at 25, 30, 40 yeah. years old, who's been in their house for six months is thinking, how can this house work better for me in the future? Uh, if this happens again and I'm locked in this house again, you know, as I get older, you start thinking about all these new ways of, of living and they'll be reaching out to architects to make those, to help, help make those decisions. So, mm -hmm. um, very interesting. So Taylor, um, before we wrap things up, what does the future of TPD architect look like? Where, mm -hmm. where do you want to go in the next few years? Well, um, we um, we are lucky to be growing. Um, we are actually looking to hire some more folks to be on our team. Um, we've been doing, I hired an interior designer full-time uh, almost two years ago, and um, we're expanding into that realm. So we want to be able to provide not only architecture for folks who are, who are aging in place, but kind of specialized selections for furniture and, and um uh, interior design packages that kind of reflect that need for ease of maintenance and use. So we're expanding in the interior design realm. We're also doing, um, we're working currently on some um, projects that are bigger in scale. So um, multi-units of, of aging in place homes for continuing care retirement communities. So they're coming back on the spectrum and not just assisted living, but they're offering independent living as independent homes. And so we're designing some of that. So I hope to expand and continue that effort. Um, that's been a lot of fun. Um, I've actually been working with my dad on that and we have really enjoyed working together on that project. Um, so uh, I think we are gonna continue to expand kind of in the in the practical side of it, but um, also to, to really dive into to some of the research and to some of the exciting kinds of innovations that are happening in product lines and, and design work around seniors and, and what does that look like? And so, you know, it's kind of a multi-pronged approach. I really want to be doing, I want to be doing family work and I want to be doing work for, for folks who need it for larger communities, but also to take the time um, to really develop my, my expertise in this and take time to research. There's so much exciting stuff that's happening right now. Um, I kind of liken it to when I was a young mom and all of a sudden those new fancy strollers came out that cost a gajillion dollars. <laughs> and I really wanted one of those bugaboos. Uh, and, but that design effort hasn't really happened for walkers or, or, or wheelchairs yet, but it's starting to. And so getting involved in that, um, in that development is something I'd really like to do. Yeah. So, um, I have one more question before I answer the, ask you the final question. I, that whole idea of product design really is intriguing. Um, is there opportunities for architects there as well to sort of look at the beyond architecture? Uh, once you become sort of an expert in aging in place, can you expand that beyond the built environment? I think, I, th 
I think you can. Um, so there's a group in California um, that has been working with, and I, I'm going to forget his name, but he worked for IDEO for a significant period of time. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this probably three weeks ago. Um, and there has been a significant effort with this group to help engage seniors in a design process um, to help them understand kind of what their priorities are um, and to help product designers do that as well. From my perspective, and that's kind of a global kind of effort. Um, from my perspective, we've been working on things like how to make vanities um, that are traditional looking, but to customize them so that they can be uh, adapted uh, uh, to be used when somebody needs to use them seating. So we're doing it in a very specialized way right now with custom cabinet makers. But what we'd love to be able to do is take some of those designs and market them to a furniture company or someone else so that we can expand that opportunity to the larger public. Um, because right now it's really something that can happen in a custom way, but but we'd love to be able to to have more people have access to that kind of feature in their own homes should they want it. Yeah, it, it does not sound like by picking a specialist, you have reduced your opportunities. No, not <laughs> at all. And I was so worried about it and I fought it for so long. Um, and it has, it has opened up so many new doors just in my own brain about ways to, new ways to work um, that I didn't, that I wasn't thinking about before. I was really sort of in the grind of production work, design work, production work, design work, production work. And now I, I sort of have got some flexibility, like I said, mind and space and brain space yeah, to be able yeah. to think about things. It's very exciting to hear your journey and to and to uh, see what, what you're doing today and where you want to go and super exciting. And it's and it's been a lot of fun to watch you from the early days when you first joined Entree Architect and where you were and the things you were struggling with. I remember when you hired your first employee and how hard that was to get through that process. Um, I've watched you evolve and grow. And so it's really exciting uh, and personally, personally fulfilling for me to watch you where you are today. Well, it's to your credit, Mark. Um, it is to your credit. I, I, I would say that what I have learned here at Entree Architect has been, um, has given me between the, the work in the podcast and the work that you have done with bringing experts in and my small group. I mean, I got to give a shout out to ASGO3. They're an extraordinary group of people. Yes, um, they are. And, uh, and they have supported uh, me and we've supported each other through all sorts of different endeavors. So that this community and the work that you have done has been really the catalyst that allowed me to take some leaps that I wouldn't have taken otherwise. That's, that's very, thank you for saying that. That makes me very, very happy to hear that. hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, the final question, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Um, well, I would say specialize, but we sort of talked about that. I think the other thing that I would say is to give yourself some grace, um, that it is not, uh, it's not always a predictable trajectory. Um, and sometimes you need space to live and space to breathe um, and space to think. And if you give yourself some grace and allow yourself to make some mistakes, you'll learn a lot more in the process. Um, being so focused on an end goal can ultimately be really disappointing. Um, so being the longest running, the, the longest startup in the history of startups in Birmingham was really kind of the right path for me. And it forced me to sort of be able to, to give myself some grace. Um, and I, I think that that to me has been the thing that I tell other people. So I, I think that's kind of my one thing is, is a little bit of grace. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, 
you know, having focused so much in this this conversation about where you are today and the success that you're having, but and so you're inspiring many architects who are sort of in that that time in their careers of maybe I need to finally sort of focus on one thing, mm-hmm. but I also want to have the young architects hear that what you just mm-hmm. said that 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 longest startup in history is okay, <laughs> right? It's okay. We don't need to you know build the final product right that first time it's an evolution Mm -hmm. and you want to follow your passion and try things and fail sometimes and try other things and succeed and then you know find your purpose and your passion and just sort of just keep experimenting and keep growing and just keep serving the rest of the world in a positive way and you'll find your place and eventually you will find your place just like taylor has just like i have and many of us here at entree architect have sort of worked our way to the point where we're sort of okay with where we are today and where we're going from this point forward, because I think that's the evolution of an architect, mm-hmm. that those early years should be experimental. They should mm-hmm. be sort of uh, opportunities to, to try things and see if it works. Mm-hmm. And so uh, mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. Uh, Taylor Davis is this lady's name. You can learn more about her, tpdarchitect.com. It's her website. You can go there, check her out there, connect with her and say hi say that uh, you know, you've heard about her here at Entree Architect Podcast. She's on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram as well. Go there now and go say hi and, and connect and, and follow there. All of those links will be on the show notes for this episode. So just go to the show notes, click the links, and you can get right over there. Taylor, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. You uh, are, thank you. I did too. You are an, an inspiring person to, uh, to hear your story to understand where you've come from, your journey through being an architect and, and where you are today uh, and the success you're having. I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. And thanks for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast today. That was fun. Thank you, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. We have ready-to-edit business resources, live monthly training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you, small firm architects. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership. Come join me and hundreds of Entree Architect peers at entrearchitect.com slash join. That's entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? 
Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.